Every now and then, I research about cases and later find that they relate to each other. These two young women, Jamie and Alicia, were both kidnapped by deranged men, but with Alicia's law passed in Wisconsin, they were able to fund and launch programs that raised awareness about Jamie's disappearance, allowing many people across the country to know her name. Here are their stories. was born on July 13, 2005 to 56-year-old James and 46-year-old Denise Kloss of Barron, Wisconsin. Jamie was an only child. At the time, she was a student at Riverview Middle School and was known by her classmates as a quiet and sweet girl who loved dancing and sports. In school, she participated in cross-country and was considered by her pals as a very loyal friend. The Kloss family were really close. Jamie considered her mother as one of her best friends. They were inseparable. Jamie and her mother would often visit Jamie's grandfather on a weekly basis, bringing him collectibles they'd find at local antique stores. The day before Jamie went missing on the 14th of October, Jamie and her mom attended a relative's birthday party where they brought little gifts for everyone there. Her father, James, was working at the time of the party. Then the next day on the 15th of October at 12.53 a.m., the dispatchers for the Barron County Sheriff's Department received a concerning 911 call. The phone call was no one talking but instead yelling. The call disconnected and the dispatchers called back, reaching Jamie's mother, Denise's voicemail. Due to the length of the initial call, the authorities were able to ping the location and responders sped to the Kloss household. The police arrived at the house four minutes after the initial 911 call was made. They found the front door was kicked in and when they went inside to investigate, they found James and Denise shot to death. The family dog was still alive, but Jamie was missing. The search began. An Amber Alert was immediately sent out for Jamie, and the police searched the house thoroughly, but found no DNA, no shoe prints, or fingerprint evidence at all. The gun that was utilized on James and Denise was also not located at the scene of the crime. But the police did find Denise's cell phone in the doorway of the hallway bathroom. A search and rescue dog was brought to help but could not find any evidence. The police concluded that the missing girl was not responsible for the murder and was likely a victim of a kidnapping by the person who killed her parents. They believed that Jamie was in danger. Neighbors were interviewed and investigators learned that two gunshots had been heard in the area just 20 minutes before the initial 911 call was made. However, since hunting was a normal thing in that area, they assumed that the gunshots were due to hunters. A second search of the house was conducted, followed by a search party of 100 volunteers combing through fields and ditches near the home on the sides of US Route 8. Drones and infrared technology were deployed, but nothing was found. To help expand awareness, digital billboards across the United States featured the missing Jamie Kloss, and the FBI issued an award of $25,000, later increased to $50,000 for her safe return. The police received more than 2,000 tips, with most leads coming to a dead end. In January of 2019, two businesses in Antigua, Wisconsin teamed up to raise awareness featuring Jamie's image and information on the sides of semi-trailers across the nation. Then on January 10th, 2019, Thursday afternoon, 88 days after Jamie went missing, a local woman and former social worker, Jean Nutter, was walking her dog when she saw the underdressed Jamie on the road just outside of her home in Gordon, Wisconsin. 
which is about an hour north of Jamie's home. Jean said that she recognized Jamie immediately since her picture was everywhere and that she knew something was wrong right away because Jamie looked very distressed and was only wearing a sweatshirt, leggings, and slippers while in freezing temperatures. Jean said, and I quote, I figured she left wherever she had been in a hurry. A lot of things went through my head. I quickened my pace and got to her, and she just sort of fell into me and said, I'm Jamie, and I said, I know. Jamie then told Jean the name of her kidnapper, who police identified as Jake Thomas Patterson. Jamie also pointed out where his cabin was located, which was just by Jean's home. Because of this, Jean decided to take the girl to a neighbor's house further away to call the police. Jamie was able to escape her kidnapper, Jake Thomas Patterson, because he apparently believed that Jamie was too afraid of him to attempt to do so. In the bedroom he shared with Jamie, Jake never put any special locks on the door and would sometimes let Jamie out of the cabin for brief walks on the lawn. Then, the day Jamie escaped, Jake told Jamie that he was leaving for a few hours and put her under his bed and boxed her inside the room with his belongings which apparently was a very usual routine for them. After he left, Jamie pushed the objects far enough for her to escape and ran from the house into Jean Nutter's arms. The police arrived at around 4.45 p.m. and decided to remove Jamie from the area for her safety. Jamie provided a description of Jake and his vehicle, which helped deputies find and identify Jake when he drove by. When the deputy pulled him over, Jake simply said, I did it. With police by her side, Jamie was admitted to the hospital and the next morning was released to the custody of her aunt Jennifer Smith. Jay confessed to the authorities that he initially drove to the Kloss's home to kidnap Jamie 10 days prior to the abduction, but was unable to due to the witnesses around. He made a second attempt two days later, but was not able to get to Jamie alone. Then on October 15th, his third attempt, he armed himself with a shotgun. He was wearing a black coat and a ski mask when he tells Jamie's dad to open the door, fatally killing him. He forced his way into the house when he found the bathroom door locked and began shooting it down, which is when Denise made that telling 911 call. On January 14, 2019, Jake Patterson was charged with two counts of first-degree intentional homicide, one count of kidnapping, and one count of armed burglary, with bail set at $5 million cash. On March 27, he pleaded guilty. On May 24th, Patterson was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, and an additional 40 years for kidnapping. The Douglas County authorities did not pursue charges against Patterson related to Jamie's 88 days in captivity because they didn't want to put Jamie through further questioning. The authorities believe that Jake did not have any social media contact with Jamie or her family, and Jamie's relatives did not recognize Jake at all. Jake told the police that he initially saw Jamie getting off of a school bus back in September while he was driving home from work, and he said he knew that she was the girl he wanted to take. Then while in jail, he answered questions regarding the time Jamie spent in captivity, and he said that they were just watching TV, playing board games, cooked, and talked. Jamie later told authorities that Jake would force her to hide under his bed to conceal her presence when his family members came to visit. He would frequently barricade Jamie and one time beat Klaus because he thought she moved from under the bed. Jake also had fantasies about Jamie but never acted on them. Jake Patterson is currently in prison and Jamie is now living with her aunt and uncle. In 2001, 13-year-old Alicia got a screen name and decided to go online. She would initially talk to friends from school, but then there was a stranger, a boy who she thought was around her age, approached her in a Yahoo chat room. When Alicia got to talking to him, she realized that he was into all the things that she was into. According to Alicia, 
He listened to what she had to say, day and night, at all times, giving her advice. She frequently complained to the stranger, and this guy comforted her, as if he were grooming her. Then, nine months after the initial conversation, it was New Year's Day of 2002. She was celebrating with her entire family. Her mom, dad, brother, brother's girlfriend, and grandmother were gathered around having dinner. At some point between dinner and dessert, Alicia asked her mother if she could go lay down because she had a stomach ache, but this was not true. Instead, she slipped past a Christmas tree which was by their front door and went outside to meet the man that she met online. Alicia began walking up the ice-covered streets for about a block. It was dark and silent, and so her intuition told her to turn back around. When she turned to go back home, her name was called, and the next thing she knew, she was terrified while in the car with a 38-year-old Scott Tyree. As soon as she got in the car, he grabbed her hand so tight that she thought for a second that it may have been broken. He yelled at her saying, be good, be quiet, warning Alicia that if she didn't listen, he would put her in the trunk. Scott sped away and after some time, they reached a toll booth, but the man in the toll booth didn't see her and Scott continued driving for five more hours. Scott Tyree drove all the way from Virginia to Pittsburgh to kidnap Alicia and then drove her back to his home in Virginia. The car stopped. He dragged Alicia into the house, down a flight of stairs into his basement with a padlock, and took her inside. Around the basement were electronics that Alicia herself didn't understand. Scott immediately removed Alicia's clothes and said, This is going to be really hard for you, but it's okay. Cry. He sexually assaulted her in his basement dungeon and filmed it to broadcast online, live streaming it for others to witness. Afterwards, he put a dog collar around Alicia's neck and dragged her upstairs to his bedroom. Scott then chained Alicia to the floor next to the bed. Scott continued to beat, torture, and sexually assault Alicia for four days. When Alicia tried to fight Scott away, she ended up with a broken nose. Then, on the fourth day, on January 4th, 2002, he said, and I quote, I'm beginning to like you too much. Tonight, we're going for a ride. Scott fed Alicia for the first time that day and left for work. Alicia thought that that night, was when he was going to get rid of her. Alicia started to accept her fate when she heard men banging on the front door. She initially thought that the men were going to kill her, so she hid under the bed as she heard them shout, clear, clear, clear. Then she heard, movement over there, as she saw boots along the side of the bed. The man ordered her to crawl out from under the bed and put her hands up. She abided and dragged the cold, heavy chain out from under the bed and put her hands out while still trying to cover herself at the same time. Alicia had no clothes on from head to toe as she stared down the barrel of a gun. She thought that this was when she was going to die, but then she saw FBI on the back of his jacket as more law enforcement agents rushed inside the room. They immediately cut the chain around her neck, helped her up, and set Alicia free. Apparently, while in the basement dungeon, those strange electronics that Alicia could not understand were a way for her kidnapper, Scott, to broadcast abuse via livestream online to strangers. A viewer in Florida recognized Alicia from the news stories and missing persons poster from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Kids. The viewer then contacted the FBI anonymously via payphone because he feared being charged as an accessory to the crime. The FBI used the Yahoo username they received from the tip which linked it to Scott's IP address, leading authorities to his address which was a townhouse in Herndon, Virginia. Luckily, law enforcement arrived at the home at 4.10 p.m. while Scott was due to arrive back at his house at 4.30 p.m. Instead, authorities went to Scott's workplace to arrest him. Alicia was brought to a hospital after her rescue and was released to the custody of Fairfax County CPS. Her parents were privately flown to Virginia by the FBI the next day. Afterwards, Alicia suffered from PTSD and memory loss. In September 2003, Scott Tyree 
was sentenced to 19 years and 7 months in federal prison. He was released in February 2019 from the Federal Correctional Complex and was assigned to a halfway house in Pittsburgh. Then, October 2019, Scott violated his parole and returned to prison for an additional two years. Alicia and her family vowed to make a difference, and at the age of 14, she founded the Alicia Project, which is an advocacy group that raises awareness and education on topics such as internet safety for children. Alicia went to multiple schools and conferences to share her story. In 2007, she testified before the House Judiciary Committee and successfully lobbied for the passage of the Protect Our Children Act of 2008 and worked alongside Protect for the passage of Alicia's Law in all state legislatures. Today, Alicia's Law provides a stream of funding to the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. The money is used for training, task forces, research, and rescue efforts. Alicia's Law has been passed in 11 states, and Alicia herself continues to advocate for its passage in all 50 states. In 2018, Alicia's Law has assisted in the arrest of over a thousand online predators in just Wisconsin alone and was even involved in the search and rescue of Jamie Kloss. Hey everyone, thank you guys so much for watching this video. Please like, comment, and subscribe. And if you haven't already, please hit that notification bell button to get notified whenever we upload a new video. Thank you.